Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. One of the things we're going to get at is the issues of the airports. And it's a major issue in this country, as I don't have to tell you if you've been trying to travel or if you've been traveling and your bags have been God knows where and you've been God knows where or hung up for hours at the airport just trying to make a flight that got canceled. We're going to be taking some uh, some calls from you shortly, right after my first interview. And then later on in the program, we'll get at it again a little differently with a former Air Canada captain, our good friend Raymond Hall will join us with uh, his assessment of what's going on. So let's get started right away. And uh, one more thing I want to tell you. Next half hour, the issue of Afghans who supported Canada during the battles, during the insurgency, the war against the insurgents, once again being ignored by our federal government. They say they're not, but they are. And we'll be speaking with Major General Dean Milner, the last Canadian Forces Commanding Officer in Afghanistan, who's been working so hard to get the uh, Afghan interpreters and others who worked for this country put their lives at risk and who are being hunted by the Taliban. Major General Milner will be with us. We'll also talk to Left Behind Alex, one of the interpreters who made his way out of Afghanistan by his own means, tried to come to Canada. He's still available to come to Canada, by the way, to the federal immigration minister. I have his contact information. I'll be glad to pass it on to you so you can bring him into Canada and take credit for it. We'll talk to uh, Left Behind Alex and uh, his former um, Canadian commanding officer from PPCLI. That's coming up in the next half hour. But let's get to this issue of the travel in this country. And a majority of Canadians say Canadian airport delays are a national embarrassment that's the term that was used in uh, the Global News story. Poll was done for Global News by Ipsos. Sean Simpson is Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show. How are you, Sean? I'm well, thank you, Roy. Good to have you with us. My now, God. you do a lot of traveling. I do. Right? So you're in the air a lot. And no one who travels a great deal appreciates more just being able to get to the airport, get through security, get on the plane and get to where you're going. Mm -hmm. So a few things more frustrating than being caught up in a lineup or a series of lineups as you try to depart or deplane and get away from the airport if you're on arrival. There's a huge issue of frustration. What did you find in your polling was the number one issue for frustrated travelers? <laughs> well, uh, they're all issues, but there's a lot of blame to go around. But ultimately, I think what Canadians are looking for is a little bit of predictability, meaning uh, that when you go to the airport, there are things that can be expected. First, that you travel, you know, you can check in in a reasonable amount of time, that you can travel through security in a reasonable amount of time, and that your bag is going to arrive at the same airport at the same time as you. And what's happening right now is that there's no predictability. Uh, you hear rumors that you might need to be at the airport four or five hours ahead of your flight to be on time, but some people show up and they get through security in three minutes, then they've got four hours to go in the airport. Other people show up three hours ahead of their flight, and they miss their flight. Um, so it, it's like 
like playing a game of roulette every time you take to the skies now, and particularly when it comes to flying and travel, Canadians just want to know what to do, and they'll do it, but the other end, meaning the airlines, the airports, the governments, to, to hold up to their end of the bargain, and they're not doing that. Yeah, so chaos begets chaos. Yes. yes. When the travelers speak to you, and they have an opportunity to express their frustrations. <laughs> what? Uh, let me ask you this. Where are they assigning blame? I understand that it's fairly equally distributed. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's a, a pox on all your houses, if I can <laughs> use a Shakespearean quote. Uh, and, and when I say everybody's to blame, um, Canadians are blaming the federal government, particularly when it comes to uh, customs delays. They're blaming airlines, particularly when it comes to flight delays, cancellations, and check-in counter delays. They're blaming airports themselves when it comes to security delays. And in fact, some blame is even being assigned to other Canadian travelers who may be a little bit out of practice and I think could be forgiven this part, um, are maybe not completely in tune with the ever-evolving and changing regulations and requirements that are being asked of them. Now, I understand, though, that when you ask Canadians about the performance at airports in this country, 60% do not buy that Canada is doing a better job than other countries. Are we just really pissed off? Yeah, well, there's there's certainly some uh, uh, degree of understanding. Roughly half say... Uh, you know, the quick rebound in travel demand from the pandemic couldn't have been predicted. So it's understandable that airports are having a hard time keeping up right now. However, uh, Canadians also believe that we're falling behind. I mean, we're hearing reports that Pearson has been one of the worst airports in the world, not just Canada or North America, but the world. Um, and so uh, only a minority of Canadians are are, are letting our, our, our local officials uh, off the hook, so to speak, and say, well, we're no worse than others. No, in fact, the opposite is true. The majority of Canadians are saying, we are worse than others, and why are we worse than others? And there's this, this belief that this is um, partly a symptom of some of the larger problems that our society seems to be facing due to government neglect, our, our ERs. Our passport delivery, uh, inflation, you know, Bank of Canada didn't move quick enough. Neither did most banks didn't move enough on combating inflation. All of these things uh, are, are, are going wrong. And airports are, are just yet one more example. So the airport situation is symptomatic of everything else that's going south. This is the this is the view of the majority of people in this country. Yes. That's right. And um, it's having consequences. And those consequences are that, in fact, a majority of Canadians say that they're going to avoid travel through airports until the situation improves. And you might say, well, boo-hoo, you know, travel is a, is a luxury for, mo- for most people. It is. Sometimes you, you have to go, um, you know, weddings and funerals and other things. But we have to remember that we just came through a real crappy two years where people weren't able to travel. Uh, and now this is our first taste of relative freedom and, and um, uh, where people can go and do, do what they want. And this is what they have to face now. And so they're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Either go for that vacation that you haven't had for two years and endure the suffering at the airport and hope your bags arrive and all of these things, or postpone yet again another vacation. So Global News headline today, why is Ottawa turning away from Afghans who helped Canada? We're failing them. We have been talking about this for years, for years. And here we are again, an issue we've pursued with Afghan interpreters 
in Afghanistan. You've heard them tell us how afraid they are for their lives. And tell us specifically what the Taliban were going to do them, to them and their families if they were caught. So why are we in this position? Why is our federal government not more responsive to the needs of the people we assured we would help when they were there for us? Prime Minister of this country said a few months ago, you were there for us, we're here for you. Apparently not. Our guest has worked tirelessly to safeguard Afghan interpreters who stood alongside CAF troops in battles with insurgents, including after funding from the federal government dried up. Our guest is Major General Dean Milner. He was the last commanding officer of the Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan, as well as commanding general of the NATO training mission in Afghanistan. General Milner, how are you? Great, great to hear from you, Roy. And uh, yes, yeah, it's just uh, it's not a not a good time frame right now. It's uh, and I, and I I will start by saying it's great to hear you driving this very very important issue forward. It's uh, that news that hit us last night. It, it just it's hard to believe. It's shameful. We've made promises to these Afghans and. And all of a sudden now we're we're turning back on um, the process has been extremely slow uh, to to say the least. But uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't understand. I really don't understand what the, the government's doing here. General, you've been working very hard on a day to day basis every day for the Afghans who need to get out of the country because their lives are literally at stake. Would you tell us, please, about the special immigration program, which committed to bringing 18,000 Afghans who assisted Canada to this country as Afghanistan was essentially handed over to the Taliban? What was the special immigration program about? Well, um, I mean, this this is a program where exactly that. We're trying to get Afghans out that, uh, that soldiered alongside of us, um, work with us in Afghanistan uh, in the early days, any any time with us, and and um, you know we're trying to get them out, and uh, it's been a very very difficult process. Uh, the bureaucracy to get the paperwork lined up. Uh, we have managed to pull out. Uh, the government says about seven thousand. Um, it's sure not a huge per- percentage of of our list. Um, but it's it's been painstakingly slow, and uh, you know we, we continue to work. Uh, we continue to get offered money. We don't get the money. Uh, we continue to be offered more support. Uh, recently, numbers were another three thousand. Now we are hearing that the the workers in IRCC Immigration Canada are saying it's still on. So there's. There's a little bit of controversy there with what this latest am- announcement has said. Uh, but all that to say is that we're going to continue working. Um, this is we've, we've got to we've got to get the government back on track. Uh, we've got to understand what they've just said uh, to us in the news uh, yesterday. Uh, but but again, Roy, it's been shameful. It's it's been painstakingly slow. Uh, we need to get these Afghans out. The situation in Afghanistan continues to get worse. Why? If they fall into the hands of the Taliban, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the Taliban are. I mean, they're getting closer and closer. I mean, they're 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 researching. They're looking for for Afghans that work for us. 
Um, you know, so, I mean, they're going to continue to, to hunt down Afghans that have worked for us. I just had lunch with uh, um, Ahmed Abibi, a soldier that worked worked for me, and his his two daughters are, are married, and their Afghan husbands are in Afghanistan, and we can't get them out. And, and it's ridiculous. I mean, they, they should be, you know, like front runners to get out. But the process, again, is, has been um, embarrassingly slow, and we can't get them out either. Um, so, so I, you know, we thank you for keeping the heat and light on this, you know, very important subject. And we, we need to continue to push back at the government because they promised 40000 yeah. And I and I don't think we're much over seven thousand. Yeah, you know I don't understand why they had a, a hard cap number in any event. But yeah. if you're going to give a number, then live up to the number and get the yeah. people out of the country, who without that being done will be at the mercy of the Taliban, and they will not show any mercy. They will torture and they will kill the people, the Afghan people who stood alongside. Canada's military, people like you, General, and the officers and the men and the women who served with you. Um, what level of confidence do you have that the government is, in fact, still working on this? They say they are, but what level of confidence, based on your experience with them, do you have? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough question, Roy, because I, I don't have a lot of confidence uh, we still have a number of, of outstanding Canadians, um, you know, retired uh, NCOs and officers that are working this extremely hard, volunteers. Um, we, get, we get some positive responses from Immigration Canada. We think we're moving in the right direction, and then nothing happens. Uh, we get some positive responses from Pakistan that they'll allow us to move people out. We got hardworking people over in Pakistan. Uh, you know, the ambassador making making headway, and then we get this kind of announcement. We're hearing from the workers in IRCC that uh, Immigration Canada it's still a go. Um, so, um, you know, my confidence uh, has has been beaten up months and months ago. But we're going to continue to work. I mean, we've got to continue to keep this on the radar screen of, of the, the Canadian government. We don't we don't give in for anything. And uh, you know, this government is is it, it's shameful if, if they if they stop bringing Afghans in. They need to get this going again. It's and, a death sentence. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a death um, sentence. It's, it's pretty sad. Yeah, General, what uh, what can Canadians individually do? Uh, there was a time when funding was needed. As you were still trying to keep the safe houses going in Afghanistan, is still that is that still an issue? How can people help out if they have the means to do so? Absolutely, a Am and Lara uh, is our group, Am and Lara, and uh, we're still we're still accepting funding uh, that can help us move the Afghans out of Afghanistan. Uh, we've asked the government for some money. Um, we're waiting to hear back from that once again. Uh, but again, I don't know what this new revelation is as to them, you know, saying that they're going to end the program, when they're going to end the program. Um, you know, the specifics of that are not, not clear to us. Uh, but all that to say is, yes, we still need funding. We have volunteers that are working around the clock 
uh, on this particular uh, subject. I just talked to them, uh, you know, this week. Um, so, so yes, um, funding helps us um, with our contacts with our people in Afghanistan to help move through the process. Yeah. What? How do you spell the uh, the name of the organization? Amman Lara. A M A N, and then Lara. Uh, and I, I can I can send you the contact. Yeah, please uh, do, and I'll mention it on the air. Yeah, yeah. 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 Please and, do. And you can send send that out, but it'd be great. I mean, it's it's uh, it's important to all of us. And again, I just you know I just had lunch with one of the important you know officers that I served with. Uh, he's lucky; his family's here, but parts of the family are still over there. Uh, my interpreter, his his brother. And family are in in a horrible situation with the Taliban trying to hunt them down. His mother uh, is over here, and she's she's down in the dumps every day. She's got cancer now, and she may not be able to ever see her son. And we're not moving him up. So there's just there's countless stories of these poor Afghans that our government's not not supporting. And I don't understand it because you'll have the minister saying one thing. But they're not acting on it. There's no execution of a plan. We're going to speak with, uh, as I mentioned, one of the Afghan nationals and an interpreter for the Canadian military who, with his family, is in the United States. Yet his applications to receive a visa to enter Canada go unanswered. It's been his dream to come to this country, and he was assured it would happen. It's not happening. His name is Alex, left behind Alex is where you'll find him on Twitter, former interpreter for the PPCLI in Afghanistan. Alex is with us, as is Major Alexander Watson, also of Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry in Afghanistan. And Alex was assigned to Major Watson's unit. Alex, how are you? Hey, Roy, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? How's your family? Uh, we're doing well. So hot in Dallas right now but well, we're fine somehow we're safe right now you know yeah you want to come to Canada it's been your dream for more than a decade and nothing yeah. is happening right you're not what are you getting back from the Canadian government when you ask them for for a visa well uh, I asked them to give me or let's say treat me the same like the other interpreters that they treated a long time ago uh, like to grant me a visa Welcome me to Canada because uh, I don't want to walk and cross the border, like I said, as, as usual, or as always, I'm telling, like, I'm not going to cross the border. I just want to be welcomed legally. And you're getting back from Ottawa, from the federal government. What are you getting back from them? Nothing, nothing at all, except the support from you, my, my Major Watson, my General D. Milner, and other people. Nothing from federal government, nothing from prime minister, nothing. I mean, no answer from government of Canada. Major Alexander Watson, uh, Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry, and uh, living a different life, non-military life now, but uh, you were in the PPS, PCLI in Afghanistan. Major Watson, would you uh, tell us, please, how important uh, Alex was to your unit, how important the interpreters were to you and the mission that you were tasked to perform in Afghanistan. Well, it's, it's absolutely the case, Roy, that there's no way we could have conducted our mission without the interpreters. 
And as I've, you know, said before, you know, we came in for seven to nine months at a time, but the interpreters just stayed there and endured tour after tour. Uh, they endured all the same dangers as us, but, but exponentially more because they were just out, you know, year after year after year. And there were injuries and fatalities amongst those interpreters. And the bonds that we developed with them were extremely tight. Um, I know, I remember Alex as being, you know, one, a very functional interpreter in that his ability for us to, you know, facilitate engagement with the local people that we were there to protect was excellent. Uh, you know, he was physically fit. I, I have a memory of him wandering around with a rocket launcher around his neck once that somebody was making him carry. So, you know, he endured all those same physical travails that the troops did. And, you know, we worked so hard on Alex's file in kind of 2014 to 2018, and there was just so, simply no interest in trying to get him out of Afghanistan at that time. How disappointing is that to you and to other veterans who were in Afghanistan and feel the same way you do? about the interpreters, to know that there's no response from Ottawa? Well, I take some of that blame on ourselves. The program was open, you know, up until 2011 or 2012. So there was an opportunity to get a lot of the interpreters out, and, and Alex just got missed in that process. But our argument in the middle of the decade was, you know, just because the program is closed doesn't mean our obligations to these people has ended or the danger to them has, has ended. And our argument was that, Either the program itself should be reopened or these people should be given sort of a special status that would allow them to get them out. And, you know, I look at that debacle last summer where the, the West left with its tail between its legs. You know, this is just one way to salvage a little bit of honor and moral authority out of out of that withdrawal to at least demonstrate um, that if you stand with Canada, Canada you're going to be looked after afterwards. Alex, you still have family in Afghanistan, yes? Yes, sir. And you're worried about them, clearly. Yes, I, I was worried about them, but uh, thank God uh, I could have uh, pulled them out uh, to Poland. I mean, it's quite safe right now, but uh, it's not a good country because there's no job right now for my parents. They're just, uh, they were in a camp, inside a camp uh, for a couple of months, and now we're, uh, they were in an, in an apartment. But life is good for them right now. It's safe. At least they're safe. So I still have a couple of folks back in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm trying to take him out to Australia. I applied for them. I did everything I could. Yeah, you're a good guy. We have uh, one minute. Why don't you talk to each other? Sure. Alex, how are you? I'm doing great, sir. Uh, how you doing? So how is your family doing? Oh, they're well. Uh, you know, we've had a rainy summer, and today's one of the first hot days, but it's not plus 47 like Kandahar, or maybe Dallas, yeah. for that matter. Yeah, Dallas, the same like Kandahar. Uh, so I still remember those uh, dark days. We were going outside the wire. I have a lot of memories from you and your team, sir. Now, they're kind of wild times. They kind of... Uh, fit the category of the best of times and the worst of times. I'm not quite sure how to classify them sometimes, but we we couldn't have done yeah. it without you, buddy, and, and we miss you, miss you so much. All right, so I tweeted earlier today, at the Roy Green Show, follow me on Twitter, at the Roy Green Show, I tweeted out that uh, the Prime Minister's national approval rating, as far as Canadians is concerned, not looking that good. 
According to Leger polling this week for Post Media, 55% of Canadians disapprove of the job Justin Trudeau is doing as Prime Minister. 39% approve. What happened to that adoring mob in Calgary? 49% of Canadians believe Trudeau should resign before the next election, while 30% believe he should stay on and run in the next election. Let's get into this uh, with Andrew Enns, Vice President of Executive Vice President of Leger Marketing. And they, again, conducted the poll. Andrew, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program. Uh, could you just break down the, the national numbers for us before we look at things regionally or maybe even provincially? Break down the national numbers for us as far as the job approval for Justin Trudeau's concerned? Uh, for sure, Rory. Look, thank you very much for having me on your program. The uh, So as you put it, uh, we asked the question, you know, generally speaking, do you approve or disapprove of the job Justin Trudeau is doing as prime minister? And nationally, 55% of, of Canadians said they they disapproved. Uh, and within that number, uh, Roy, 32%, almost a third, said they strongly disapproved. Uh, you know, balanced out, uh, you know, 39% uh, approve of the job he's doing and only 7% uh, are strongly of the view. So there's clearly, uh, you know, an imbalance there. And certainly there's also an intensity of, uh, of people who are strongly, uh, uh, strongly uh, disapprove of the, of the prime minister's uh, performance. And, and, you know, and as you said, that, that translates when we ask the question of whether or not, um, you know the prime minister should resign before the next election and allow a new, a new, uh, uh, a new leader be selected to, to be prime minister and lead the Liberal Party. Forty nine percent, almost half, uh, you know, said that that would be uh, the preferred option. So it is, uh, it, you know, it's, it's some some challenging times. There's some challenging issues out there, and it's starting to to show up in in the approval ratings for the prime minister. Seven percent strongly approve of the performance of Mr. Trudeau. National number, 7%. I remember there being a tremendous amount of uh, media opinion when Brian Mulroney's opinion or approval rate, rating dropped down to 12 or 13%. 7% is almost half of that. So, uh, Andrew, in, in relative terms, if you have 7% approval rating, you don't have any approval rating at all. Correct. Well, you know, it, you know that's strongly approved. So certainly at that seven percent strongly yeah. approved. Fair enough. But what that says, though, Roy, those the strongly the, those who feel strongly about something, and, and when we you know speak to our clients at Leger, those are your advocates. Uh, you know, those are the ones who feel you know intense, and they may actually stand up, and in that case, they may defend you know defend your positions. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, at seven percent, he doesn't have a lot of. People doing that for him across the country, as opposed to those who are who are more than willing to point out the uh, the shortcomings that thirty two percent strongly approve, strongly disapprove. Mm -hmm. If you look at it regionally across Canada, how does it break down? Well, sure. So, uh, and I and I think this is uh, this is a bit interesting when you start thinking, casting your mind to uh, to an election and what these numbers mean. So, the the highest disapproval ratings. Uh, we're in British Columbia at 60%, which I found a bit surprising. The Prairies, uh, you know, at 60%. So that's Manitoba, Saskatchewan. That maybe not as, not as much a surprise. And Alberta was high at 58%. And then the, the next high, Quebec at 58% disapproval. Roy, BC and Quebec are, are, you know, really important, uh, provinces electorally for, for any, any party that wants to be government. So, 
I think these numbers would be a bit uh, bit concerning, particularly I would say those uh, those BC numbers. I think those would be a bit of a surprise for uh, for some for some listeners thinking about you know how the Liberals have done in the past in British Columbia. Yeah, I was very surprised, um, Andrew, when I saw sixty percent British Columbia, fifty eight percent in Quebec, a disapproval of the Prime Minister's job. And then when we look at the, the national picture on uh, the numbers of Canadians who feel that Justin Trudeau should resign before the next election, that's another that's another difficult one for, for him to uh, to overcome, I would think, at 49%. Well, you're correct. Uh, you know, and, and, and I think the uh, a bit of the challenging thing is that within that 49%, uh, when I looked at looked at that number among liberal voters, like those who say currently, if an election were tomorrow, they vote liberal. Well, almost two in ten liberal voters feel he he should reside. Um, th- that that's a bit of a you know it's it's not a huge number. Uh, it's maybe it's a manageable number, but it's not an you know it's not an insignificant group of liberal supporters that are sort of giving you the look saying. You know, it's been a good run, but maybe it's time uh, its time to move on. Yeah, if you start to bleed your own support, that is definitely something to, uh, to keep an eye on. You also polled Canadians on who the best leader for the Conservative Party would be. Tell us what you, uh, what you found, please, Andrew. Yeah, yes, we did. We, uh, we had a question in, in, this, uh, in this poll. Uh, we asked, so, so we had a ballot question in, in, in the poll, and then we asked those who were supporting the Conservative Party currently, uh, we asked them a, a separate question um, in terms of who they felt out of the list, and we offered the list of the, uh, of the six candidates currently vying for the leadership. Who would be, the, who would be their, who they feel would be the best choice? And uh, Pierre Polyev, um, well, really stands out. Uh, 48% of, of, uh, of individuals that we surveyed were currently voting Conservative said he would be the best leader for the Conservative Party. Sean Charest was a distant second at 14%. Patrick Brown was still in, uh, was still on our list. He was still in the race at the time, but he was well back at 4%. And then Leslie Lewis at 3%. And then Scott and Roman at, at 1% each. So, so quite a, uh, quite a significant lead. And I will say, like, we've asked this question, Roy, several times, um, since the leadership began. And it's been remarkably uh, stable in the sense that uh, Mr. Polyev has polled 45 to 48 percent of uh, among conservative supporters consistently. It's uh, it seems like conservative voters have have uh, you know locked in and locked in early, and at this stage of the game appear to be uh, you know unshaken still. You know, again, this is supporters, Roy, not members, so it's a bit of a proxy, but but I uh, I dare say it's not wildly inaccurate either. Okay, I want to ask you something that uh, wasn't on the poll, but I wonder if there's a by extension answer here. The New Democrats and Mr. Singh signed that three-year accord with Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals that they would safeguard them from uh, non-confidence votes until 2025. Given the numbers that we're seeing, that you're seeing, that you found at Leger, as far as national support for Mr. Trudeau is concerned, is there a bit of a danger zone here for the New Democrats and this particular arrangement they have with the Liberals? Might there be? Might might this be a bit of a a warning to Mr. Singh? Yeah, you uh, you ask a really interesting question, Roy. Uh, um, I, I believe there is. I mean, I think Mr. Singh is walking a little bit of a fine line here. Um, 
on one hand, you know, New Democrats, you know, we go back to that question about whether uh, Justin Trudeau should resign before the next election. It was the one question that the New Democrat supporters in our survey were a little hesitant in terms of having him, uh, you know, being as, as aggressive about him resigning before the next election. And I suspect that could be an indication of some concern about what that does to their parliamentary deal. So I think there, I think there's some con- conflict within the new, new Democratic Party. But the other thing that's really interesting is that those disapproval numbers, they are high amongst New Democratic voters. I mean, I, I made the point to, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a discussion with, with National Post that, you know, Mr. Trudeau's progressive coalition seems to be framed with, with the New Democrat voters and Green voters, that progressive side of the uh, spectrum in Canada. I mean, they're showing at, at almost as high as dissatisfaction, disapproval with, with Mr. Trudeau as the conservative voters. And, you know, conservative voters have, have never been fans of, of the prime minister, uh, you know, at any time. I wouldn't be surprised to see high disapproval amongst conservative voters. But, but, if, but among NDP voters and Green voters, I, I think that's, that's troubling. And for Mr. Singh, back to your point, Roy, I mean, you know, he needs to be cognizant that, you know, his, uh, his embrace of this deal and, and, you know, and potentially the government might have some ramifications for him, uh, you know, amongst the, the supporters he's, he's supposed to lead. You've seen a lot of video of uh, farmers in the Netherlands, Dutch farmers, hundreds, maybe thousands of tractors blocking roads and uh, blocking communities, blocking access to various food distribution centers, because the farmers are furious about a a policy that is brought down by the European Union and supported by the Dutch government. And uh, there was, in fact, a shot fired by uh, Dutch police at a tractor driven by a 16-year-old. That one's still being investigated, although I believe the police have dropped the charges against the 16-year-old. So major unrest. Irvin Wunnekink is a farmer in uh, the Netherlands. He's also a member of LTO Nederland, Netherlands Agricultural and Horticultural Association. Mr. Wunnekink, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program. In, in a very simple way, can you tell us what this is all about? <laughs> simple is not, is not, not, not uh, very easy, but um, it's, uh, it has a lot to do with the announcement from the government that we have to reduce our nitrogen by 70 to 95%. And what the government says, we we want to buy out farms, and if you don't want to sell, we are well. We can uh, also expropriate uh, uh, well the, the farm, the farmers. So expropriation and uh, and uh, and buyouts that that's what they want to do. And then uh, in some of the areas of the Netherlands, seventy to ninety five percent reduction. So that means that you have that you are gone with your farm, and that 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 gives a lot of well, let's say. Uh, frustration, anger, and and also dis- despair uh, in some some situations. Yeah, so they're uh, instituting a fifty percent cut on nitrogen and ammonia emissions by twenty thirty. That's what they want, and they're telling the Dutch farmers they have to get rid of a significant number of cattle and uh, and have to adjust their uh, their fertilizer, as you just pointed out. Losing um, having to change things by ninety five percent. That uh, generally would mean that you can't stay in business. So LTO Nederland, your organization, is uh, stating that this Dutch agricultural policy pushed by Brussels is creating setback after setback for farmers. Do you understand then uh, why they are why 
why the farmers are on the streets, on the roads, blocking roads, blocking highways, taking the actions they're taking. Yes, I understand it, and then it, it in, in a sense, well, it comes it comes from uh, from two laws, from two European laws, and one of them is uh, let's say uh, a law about how we can protect uh, our nature in, in in the member states of Europe, and but every member state have its own responsibility how they protect uh, nature, and the other one is the the water uh, guidelines. And it says something about the quality of service water, but also from groundwater. And every member state, uh, well, has, has to make its own laws to to meet the targets and to meet the goals from from well European uh, uh, laws. So, but the member states are free how they well how they um, they, they, they 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 meet the, the, these these European laws. And what the Netherlands government uh, does is that they are very, let's say. Um, very well in a very fast way in a very quick way and it's it's a, a lot of um, when you look to it the integrality of it uh, they don't they don't they don't they don't look in an integral integral way integra- they don't look how do I say that in an integral way is it is it good English or not <laughs> that they look to the integrality of, of everything so water nature and also climate uh, yeah. what they wanted to do and it goes very fast but they don't give good plans they don't have plans they only have they only say okay this is what we want to do but we don't know how to do it and that gives that frustration and we do have um for instance uh solutions uh, by uh, innovation uh, by feeding the cows the way we feed the cows the, the way we build our barns so there are uh, also solutions for that but we are not allowed to use these solutions and what we think is a bit of a hidden agenda, and that's to to reduce the cattle uh, uh, with well twenty to thirty percent is what they want. So that's that's what we think they want to do. And uh, there is a group in the government, uh, also uh, some parties, they they do want to do, and they said they want to do that. So that that's a bit of the and and that that gives the frustration, and that's why also the farmers, well, they go they go on the street, and the setback after setback. Well, that that's what we that are. You know, uh, new laws coming up uh, every two, three years, who gives another reduction uh, of our okay. livestock. So when we uh, when we see the video of hundreds, maybe more, farm vehicles blocking highways and uh, city roads in the Netherlands, um, uh, would you give us a sense, please, of the proportion of the size of this protest protest action? Is it taking place across the country? Is it creating major major issues uh, for the for the population? Yeah, it's big, and uh, it doesn't stop. So it started a couple of months ago, and when when the plans were announced uh, by the government, uh, it was in March. It was the first time, but uh, but it's still going on. And how big is it? Well, um, there, it started with a seven, sixty, seventy thousand farmers uh, who gathered together, and it were a lot of directors and thousands of them. And what they do uh, also yesterday, they blocked the road. And uh, well, there was about in the Netherlands is is quite a small country, but we had a five six hundred kilometers of of, of traffic jam uh, all over the country. And um, so uh, it's it's it, it's big. It's major. Uh, it's major protests. What, okay. What's going and on? Have, and, the German farmers, I understand, are also 
some of them, I don't know how many, but are assisting uh, their Dutch counterparts. Yeah, but, and what they see, is it's the same. Also, Germany and Belgium, they, they do have the same problems. Uh, not, that, not that big as, as the Netherlands, but because of these European so, laws. So how does this end, do you think? What happens? Well, I, we hope that we can talk to the government, and, and that's what they, they, they stick to the goals, they stick to the, 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 the approach, the way they want to approach it. And what we want is to talk about it and to talk about these goals. Uh, can we put it in time? Uh, so can we have a 10 or 15 year time frame where we can, uh, well, make a, let's say, a route map uh, for how we can meet these goals? It's not that we don't want it, it's the way the government presents it to us, and it's the way. Well, and also the, 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 the short time frame, just in five right. or eight years, that's, yeah. that's the biggest problem. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 